Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business. In fact, welcome to episode 193, to be precise. And the reason I mention that is in a few episodes time, episode 200, we have something pretty darn exciting happening. Now, I'm not going to reveal it today. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to listen to the next few episodes. And as I said, all will be revealed in good time. Okay, so today on the show, we have Scott Jeffrey Miller, and we are going to go deep, deep, deep into leadership. Now, Scott has had a pretty full-on career, really, really interesting career. He started off working for Disney in Orlando, and then he was recruited by Dr. Stephen R. Covey and has spent 25 years in the Franklin Covey organization. Now, for those astute of you, you will know that Stephen R. Covey is the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and literally, Scott has been immersed into the world of leadership and all the thoughts and things that come from that over a very, very impressive career. So we're going to kind of jostle backwards and forwards. Uh, I'm going to tease him a bit. He's going to tease me a bit, you know, the usual stuff that happens. And one of the things I love about Scott is he's got a great quote, which is become the leader that you would follow, that you would follow, the stuff that's important to your values and how you want to show up. And that is what we are going to get into today on the show. So uh, that's it. Let's have some fun. Enjoy this conversation. As I said, leadership is one of my favorite, favorite topics, and it's great to speak to an absolute master on the subject. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Scott Jeffrey Miller. Hi, everybody. It is Nick here again, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business. Another week, another amazing guest. You know what I love about this, right? Is we've just had a five, 10 minute conversation. Before I introduce him, a five, 10 minute conversation, we've talked about body fat, we've talked about running, we've talked about leadership, we've talked about crazy stuff, glasses, even serial killers in Adelaide. All these things have happened before we've pressed record, but I'm delighted to have onto the show today, Mr. Scott Miller. I'm going to say you're a leadership expert, a leadership maestro. How's that sound? Sounds um, inflated, but thank you, Nick. No, you are. You are. We just, we just said, you know, you've got like the world's best podcast on leadership. Well, you biggest, really... not the best. It's the largest podcast. But... Well, that, that probably says something. Size matters, right? Careful. Keep going. You've got a number of books that talk about the importance and success of leadership and certainly how you get out of management messes, which we're going to get into today. Uh, as I said, you've always got the coolest glasses in the world and you've been part of Franklin Covey which is like one of the meccas of leadership development for over 20 years. Yeah. It is mecca. In fact, Nick, thanks for the invite today. I appreciate the platform. Awesome. Well, listen, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So I want to kick off. You have spent um, a lot of your career um, in the in the Franklin Covey mecca, as we say. Just take us through that. So so firstly, why so long there? And and what, what has it been about that organization that's been, um, you know, obviously so important for your career? I'm so delighted you started with that. So I live in Salt Lake City where Franklin Covey has its global headquarters. I'm originally from Florida, born and raised in central okay. Florida. Speaking of sharks, worked for the Disney company for four years. They fired me 
And so where does a single Catholic boy from Orlando move? Well, of course, to Provo, Utah, where all the Catholics are. No, there wasn't a single Catholic. They're all Mormons, right? So <laughs> here I am. I'm 26 years old. I move across the country. Stephen Covey, of course, the founder of the firm, hires me. And it was an amazing opportunity for me. You know, Utah is the opposite of Florida in every possible way. And so I had a big rise in the company, started the front line, literally, you know, carrying a sales bag and selling our leadership solutions, became the chief marketing officer in the firm and named executive officer in a global public company. Along the way, I lived in the UK, I lived in Chicago, I ran sales and, and marketing, business development. I ultimately became a best-selling author, hosted the podcast. And the reason I stayed was because of the culture. This was a group of just, you know, unimpeachably um, trustworthy people that were passionate about changing the world and inspiring leaders. Uh, the CEO is a man of enormous integrity and vision, and he cares about me and my family. I had many opportunities to leave, but 25 years was a long but great run. I actually formally stepped away from the company in November last year. I have a multi-year uh, advising contract to the board of the CEO, and I write and speak on my own now and, and, and host podcasts and TV programs and things, but I, I love the brand. I, I'm proud of the people I work with. I'm excited to kind of spread my wings, but at the end of the day, people don't quit their jobs. They quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. Therefore, I have neither. I have a great leader and an amazing culture, so I kind of can't quit them. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I think sometimes it gets underplayed a lot as well because people, I do want to delve into culture to kick yeah. things off because yes. you've mentioned it. Yeah. Um, what's, your, what's your definition of it? And what's your definition of a great culture versus one that can be considered not great or toxic? Sure. You know, I think culture is how the vast majority of people behave the vast majority of time. If the vast majority of people are backbiting and gossiping and spinning and posturing and covering their ass, that's your culture. If the vast majority of people are talking straight, declaring their intent, offering apologies, that's your culture. Culture is really how we get stuff done around here. I'll tell you, you know, for decades, culture was kind of a soft, fuzzy word that maybe the board gave lip service to. Now it is as important as EBITDA and no, price earnings per share. I mean, it is what every board is talking about because we know that people, especially the younger generation, Nick, they want to work in a place where they're valued, they're respected, where they have opportunities, where they're not going to be groped, where they're going to be encouraged to share their mind. And so culture is everything. It's the only thing that cannot be copied and stolen from you. Your brand, your trademarks, your copyrights, your go-to-market strategy, your Point of purchase displays, everything can and is being stolen from you, mainly from countries across the Pacific Ocean. What cannot be replicated is your culture. And people come to companies because of cultures. They stay in companies. They quit. And you, said, and you said at the very beginning of this, of this conversation, when I said, how, you know, why have you been with Franklin Covey so long? You said because of culture. I mean, they must have been, and, and perhaps still are, ahead of their time in terms of thinking about culture with intention, because I've seen it change massively over the last 10 to 15 years to be more strategically important. But then there's also a lot of lip services that goes backwards and forwards. So my question for you on that is, how do you create a great culture? How does someone, if I came into your company now as the new CEO, let's say, and said, you know what, or Franklin Covey, you know, how do I protect what's been created, but yeah. also as, you know, coming in, I'm going to want, want to change things maybe. Right. My, the, 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 my answer is fairly simplistic. I think it's the company's 
that understand that people are not their most valuable asset. That is human resource bunk. People are not a company's most valuable asset. It's the relationships between those people that forms your culture. Because Nick can be a Rhodes Scholar from Oxford and Scott can be a Black Belt Six Sigma expert. But if we can't get along with each other, compliment, cover for each other, forgive each other, pre forgive each other, because you're going to say something that pisses me off and I'm going to do something that undermines you because we're humans. But it's about understanding. It's all about relationships. And so that's how you build a company culture is you get very clear on what are the behaviors we want to exhibit? How do we treat each other? What does it feel like to work here? How do we make decisions? Honest to God, it's simple stuff. It's do we apologize when we said something that was offensive without any attachments? Do we have the humility to recruit people that are smarter than we are? Do you have to be the genius in the room or can you be the genius maker of others? No one wants to work for the smartest person in the room. We all make mistakes, but at the top of the top of the game, if you will, is, is how the leaders behave. Leaders are the linchpin of every culture. You cannot change the behaviors of 15,000 people but you can change the behaviors of 1,500 people. And that's how you build a great culture is start first with the behaviors and the mindsets of your leaders. Okay, that's a, that is a great answer. It's not, you didn't answer it that simplistically either, Scott, because <laughs> there's, a, there's a piece here I've found, you know, I've been the CEO of a number of companies, right? You know, through my private equity stuff we spoke about before pressing yeah. record today. Yeah. And I still see, or I have seen a lot of lip service to it, right? So, and you see this now, you know, there, there was the, the big incident with Uber, most recently, when the culture was talking, the share price drops, and people are making more notes. But, but the idea that you know, um, you know, how many people can you actually affect? So, if I go in there as the leader of my leadership team, everything I say, think, do, all of that gives permission for others to do the same, yeah, right? So, if right, that's not right. tight, boom. But then you went down to around fifteen hundred. That that's that still seems quite incredible because. You know, for me, I always thought that the bigger the pie or the bigger the triangle, to use your kind of expression, the harder it is to get everyone sort of pulling in the same line, having similar values, respecting the standards and the principles of company. Is that is that the case? It, it, it is. I, I, it starts with this. I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. I think it starts mm. fundamentally in your organization of recognizing, are you recruiting the right people to become leaders of people? Not everyone should be an anesthesiologist. Not everyone should be a commercial airline pilot. Not everyone, Nick, should be a leader of people. The problem is, in most organizations, the only way to earn more money, get promoted, have more power, or gain more influence is to lead people. So what happens is you put amazing individual contributors, and you move them out of their role because they were the top salesperson, and now they're the sales leader. There's no correlation. There's an inverse correlation in what makes you a great sales producer and what makes you a great sales leader. So I'd say to organizations, be very deliberate around, are you recruiting the right people to become leaders of people? And do you have a career track where people should not be taken out of being an individual producer, but they can earn more, they can have a better title, they can have more influence by staying as an individual contributor. Now, when you've got the right people with the right mindsets in leadership roles, it's a lot easier to get 1,500 of them to yeah. model the right behavior. Because here's the point. To be an effective leader, you have to understand that your job is to achieve results with and through other people. Your job is not to rush in and save the day, to fix the problems, to do it all yourself. You've got to build 
capability in others. That takes a patient person, takes a person with vision, takes a person that takes delight in the success of others. Be more strategic about how you screen your candidates to be one of those 1,500, and you'll be down you know, the yard line halfway before you've started. How would you define yourself as a leader, Scott? Poor. I think early on, I was the classic sales producer who was top in the company, liked significance, had zero humility. I was very competitive. I was every company's dream sales producers. And then when I got promoted to be the leader, you know, I, I was tyrannical. I wrecked havoc. I thought my job was to turn everybody else into a, my clone. I didn't realize that they didn't have my same skills. They had different fears. I was a jackass. I, I, over decades, came to realize, oh, my job is to build capability in them. My job is to build capacity in them. My job is to find out how do their passions and talents align with our company. I, I sucked. I was the classic manager. Now, there's a difference between management and leadership. You, or, you, you alluded to that. We can talk about that, but. I do want to get into that. I, I, well, yeah. What's interesting to me, right? So, you know, as I said, I, I do I do prepare for these, even though we decided that I didn't prepare. I do prepare for these. I, I always like to have a theme, right? And my theme with you was, you know, what what is Scott's life's work, right? Because, you know, I saw the background. You've come from a company like Disney. You've gone into, as I said, 20-odd years in yeah. Franklin Covey. Yeah. Right. There's a journey you've gone through, right? And it's culminated in we're talking about leadership. So that's why I'm really curious about the journey that you've discovered, because even though you may not have started as a great leader, you must have learned a lot of stuff along the yes. way that now you can identify. So I want to get into that today. I, I think I'm a much better leader now than I was. I became the chief marketing officer, right, with a large yeah. team around me, and I still work for the firm as an advisor. Uh, but, you know, being a leader in a leadership development company is tough, right? <laughs> because this is what I mean. Yeah, the your life's work you. is this stuff, isn't it? I mean, today yeah. your life's work is this stuff. So, so you must yeah. know a lot about that. But I want to hear your journey of this. So we've already we've already established yeah. that you know in the beginning it was how do I make mini Scott Millers? <laughs> My journey was about understanding what I said earlier, which is a leader's job is to achieve results with and through other people. That was a tough journey for me, right? Kind of two steps forward, one step back. I became really aware that vulnerability, Nick, is a leadership competency. My mm. job is not to have all the answers. My job is not to have the most credentials, be the most creative, the smartest person. My job is to be a talent magnet. My job is to show the humility necessary to hire the best SEO expert, the best Google Analytics person, the best web designer, bring them in and have them school me. And my job is to create a culture where they feel validated and they feel challenged and they feel uh, respected and loved. Honest to God, loved. Because people don't quit leaders who love them. My job is to give them feedback on their blind spots. My job is to coach them on how to have influence in this culture. My job is to listen to them more. Unnatural for me. I think one of the smartest things I learned from Dr. Covey was this idea of efficiency and effectiveness. This has been my journey. Dr. Covey wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book has sold 40 million copies, bestseller book in its space and print. It's often confused by being called The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. It's not. There's a difference, Nick, between being effective and being efficient. One's not better than the other. They're just different. I am, as you can tell from my personality, I am an amazingly efficient person. I am super productive. 
I get up at 3 a.m. I write my Inc. magazine column. I write my books from four to six. I'm a dad from six to eight. I'm a CMO or an author or speaker from, you get the point, right? And I'm that guy that gets up at 4 a.m. on Saturdays. I wash my car, cars by five. I work out by six. I mow the lawn by seven. I'm ready to play tennis by eight. At nine o'clock in the morning on Saturday, I'm ready to start my day. This has actually worked very well for me in life. My journey has been highly efficient. Problem, Nick, with most people who are listening right now that can identify with me is if, you're, if you have an efficiency mindset and it is your go-to strength, you tend to use that same efficiency in your relationships with people. And you cannot be efficient with people. You can only be effective. As Dr. Covey said, with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. So my journey has been recognizing when do I use my strengths with efficiency, washing the car, social media, texting, grilling hamburgers, and with my children and my wife and my in-laws and my colleagues, I have to like consciously slow down, turn off my phone, take off my Apple watch, close my laptop and listen and not kind of race through and check off my relationships. This has been a huge journey for me. It's a difficult challenge. I'm not a naturally humble person. I talk a lot. I don't listen nearly enough. So, so my journey has been learning when to be efficient and when to be effective. When was the, um, when was the first light bulb moment of that? Do you remember? Do you remember the scenario where you started to realize that, you know, you turning up being the, let's call it the, the super superstar sales guy, carrying the team, dragging people forward was not the way to, to really, you know, yeah, build. I think it was this. I think it was this. Sorry, I interrupted you. That's um, right. I was single until I was 42. I got married late in life. My wife is much younger. We had three boys in five years. Don't do that. Here was the turning point for me. I got a major promotion. I doubled my income back in my early 30s and I moved to Chicago and I ran this massive business for the company, you know, 18 salespeople. For us, that was a big division. And my boss flew out one day and he sat down in a red leather chair with gold rivets in my office. And he looked at me and he said, Scott, you're standing at a gas station and you're holding a match. And what he was talking about was, I was, I was a very competent like business manager. I could hire and fire with the best of them and run the P&L and manage deals. But I was a jackass. I was, not, I was not mature. I was not a good listener. I had very little empathy. I was like the energizer bunny. Just, you know, people dreaded being around me. In fact, one of the colleagues walked in one day and said to me, everybody hates you. And if you don't change, we're all going to quit. Now, it was, wow. a probably, it was probably a really? bit of an exaggeration, but not much. By the way, to the, to, to today, that guy is one of my best friends. He came to my wedding. He's the president of the company. And now I report to him. Like as an advisor, I report to the guy that came in 15 years ago and said, everybody hates you. If you don't change, we're going to quit. I think those two things wow, simultaneously, I, re I realized that the skills that got me here as an individual sales producer are not going to keep me here or take me to the next trajectory. That was a pivotal moment in my life. We cried. We laughed. We closed the door. We talked for three hours about the culture I had built. 
I talked about the pressure I was under and the skills that I had and didn't have. I lasted for about three more years. He took my job and then now he became the president and I report to him. And that's tough. And that's, that um, has been a difficult journey. I write about it in my books because I believe- Some of this, you know, I mean, there's two things that jump out from what you've just said there. One is, one is a, a point of self-awareness and then yeah. a point of, 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 you know, reflection on that. And then you've got, you know, the thing that jumps in my mind as you were speaking is, is how much of, how much of that transition was a change of your identity or had to be a change of your identity, something that you'd built success with previously to then be successful for the next phase? Are you a psychiatrist? That's deep shit, man. No, um, I just listened. Uh, <laughs> I told you, I told you, you know, you weren't ready for this. You know, you know who was a dear friend of mine is a man named Stedman Graham. He's a very famous entrepreneur author. He's Oprah's life partner, you know, husband oh, wow, okay. by, and Stedman's a good friend. And Stedman taught me that most, if not all of us, spend our entire life fulfilling the identity that others put on us, our mm. parents, our grandparents, our teachers, our principals. And he said, Scott, your job is to go create your own identity. Don't fulfill it for anybody else. And I had to come to grips with what were my strengths, what were my weaknesses. I'm a stutterer, Nick. I'm a lifelong stutterer. I have a mm. pretty strong speech impediment. I've had braces multiple times. I have two speech coaches. I have speech pathologists. You know, I um, I have had a lot of struggles in life. Now, I'm also at the benefit of amazing privilege in my life too, so I don't discount any of that. But to your point around identity, there was a time in my life that I really had to stop fulfilling what other people needed or wanted mm -hmm. from me and started to really understand what were my strengths, what were my weaknesses, own my messes. My books are called Mess to Success. And I think there's enormous power and just being vulnerable enough with owning your mess, teaching through them, because when you own your mess as a leader, you make it safe for others to own theirs as well. But I'd say my future journey is about teaching leaders how important vulnerability is. Vulnerability doesn't mean that you confess every sin. It means that you are humble enough, you're confident enough to talk about what you do and don't know and what are your strengths and weaknesses and create a culture where others can talk about theirs. One of my favorite quotes from Dr. Covey, which I struggle with, is humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. Yeah. And I have to remind myself of that quote basically in every conversation throughout the day. Oh. No, I, I asked I asked the question because I could feel I could feel that there was something coming through from how you answered every other question. And to be frank, me too. Are you right? psychic? No, no, I, I've been there too, right? You know, something that one of my um, one of my coaches said to me once that you know, you spend a lot of your life trying to fill fill voids with values, right? So you have a void, you fill it with a value. You know, different way of saying some of the things that yes. um, that you mentioned, yes. and and then when you were saying about your journey, it wasn't that dissimilar to mine. You know, I was feeling I was feeling a lot of someone else's expectations for a long period of time, until I realized, what the hell am I doing here? So that's why I asked. But anyway, I think good. I think you and I could be good friends. I worry that you might want me to run a hundred miles with you in 24 hours. Which you is why I a Vespa You've got the discipline. Anyone who gets up at 3 a.m. and washes the cars the and then trains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's Let's get into um because we've touched on it. And everyone's like, you know, enjoying our kind of, you know, bromance stuff going on here. Um, let's get into the management mess piece. And then I yep. want to kind of keep going into leadership. But define that for me, you know, because I, I think I get it, but I want to hear you say it. What, what do you mean by management mess? 
so the book, the first book I wrote was called Management Mess to Leadership Success. And right, yep. there are no shortage of philosophies on management here and leadership there. I'm not all caught up in that. I, I could hold my own in any conversation. I, I know a lot of managers that could be better leaders. And I know mm -hmm. a few leaders that could be better managers. They're focused on you know, vision and values, but they can't you know, bring the quarter in to save their life or fire someone that needs to be terminated. So I wrote this book because I believe that you learn more from someone else's mistakes than you do from their successes. I, mean, I cannot and will not ever run a hundred miles. I cannot replicate how handsome you are, how well-spoken you are, how I, I can't. I can't learn from your successes. I can't copy your successes. But I can avoid the mistakes you've made. I can, if you are vulnerable enough to tell me the bad decisions you made in life, and the things that you said or did or thought that actually ended up as a mistake, I can avoid those pitfalls. I mean, think about how many mistakes we've made in life and how much better we'd be off if we hadn't made them. Or maybe we are better because we did make them, we learned from them. But I just fundamentally believe that the best leaders are those that gather people around their team and they don't say, let me tell you about my first $10 million I made. What I'd rather hear is, tell me the biggest mistake you made and what was the decision-making and how did you fall victim to somebody else's idea or your own hubris or your own ego, right? Those are valuable lessons. I learn more from people who are divorced than I learn people who are married on how to is, stay is, married. Is, is that about, I mean, just, is that about the thing that actually happens? Or is it the fact that they've allowed you in? Both, both, because now I can relate to them. Now yeah, I see them exactly. as a relatable leader, not some untouchable person. I can't, I didn't go to Harvard, right? I didn't go to Stanford. Uh, my parents weren't riding horses in Madison Square Garden. So if I can relate to you, to your struggles, man, I cleave to you, right? My respect for you is so much more. I don't want to disappoint you. So I just think there is a new style of leadership. This does not mean that you gratuitously confess all of your sins, doesn't license bad behavior. It just means that you're, you're confident enough to be vulnerable. I used to think that, that humble people were shy people, they were retiring people. I thought humility was a weakness. I thought strength was stamina, power, and loud voices. So I adopted that personality. But what I came to realize, a friend of mine is Karen Dillon. She's the former editor at the Harvard Business Review. Okay. And she wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And what she taught me was that humility flows out of confidence. It's confident people who are yeah. capable of showing humility. It's arrogant people who are incapable. And I was arrogant most of my life. I'm it's, still it's, like, it's like that saying, isn't it? Like, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Pe people who have you know, use my word again, voids, they feel they need to demonstrate something which is the opposite of that to give themselves confidence. But then it comes across, to use another one of the words I know you talk about, about authenticity, like you come across as not being really real. You come across as being fake. And there's no Where connection. were you in my 20s? Had you like lived on my block? I, I would have been, I'd be, in the, I'd be in the White House right now. I would, I would not be selling books. On your oh, I, I just, I like, I like studying behavior, right? I mean, you know, and I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a business guy, right? But I've, I've gone through, God, how do I put it? I, I went through my own transition. I was the arrogant private equity guy. Um, have you seen um, Billions with Bobby Axelrod? Yeah. I was like that guy. A little bit like that and a little bit like Gordon Gecko, and mixed together with a bit of Jordan Belfort, like that sort of thing. So I was that guy, right? And and it just didn't serve me. 
<laughs> well, it may, so have I, served I, you, it may have served you in the short term, right? Yeah. But it did not yeah, serve exactly. you in the long run, especially in your relationships outside of That's work right. as well. That's yeah. right. Exactly. And yeah, you're 100% right. It served me to a point at a point in my life. And then it got to a point where it was a bit, what the hell, what, what's been going on here? That's why it's, it's just a, I find it yeah. fascinating. That's why the concepts you talk about are really interesting. Cause I believe that very truly that the best leaders, the ones that are, you know, who are, you know, to use the, the word about effectiveness, the effective leaders are the ones that show up. They are true to themselves. They are who they are. They don't try and be anything they're not. Um, you know, they are to use your word again, vulnerable and, but at the same time, competent and the same time confident. So not vulnerable. I'm going to go collapse in yeah. a corner. Because yeah. you're not going to follow someone who just, you know, as soon as it gets tough, they fall away. That's right. That's right. Well said. In fact, to take your point a bit further, I have a lot of uh, colleagues and friends that now are in private equity and venture capital. And I have found that the sages, the ones that are now like in their 70s and 80s, they want to invest in people that they like, that they respect, that they know they have the competence and the character, right? That's your ticket to the game. But these people now want to invest. And people like you and I, hopefully, where they think, you know, that they've, 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 they've uh, learned some lessons, they've got some humility, and that they believe in us. And I don't know that those same people would have invested in me 25 years ago. They would have thought I was competent and had strong character. But my lack of humility in my 20s and even 30s, would have, they would have said, you know what, come talk to me 20 years from now. Or don't talk to me at all. And that conversation, you know, you had with your boss in Chicago, the sort of you're holding on to a, everything's about to explode. Was that a kind of like, you know, if you don't, if you don't understand what's going on here, you are, you've hit your ceiling. Uh, this is as far no, as you, you can You haven't go. hit your ceiling. The casket is closing on you. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, I, what's interesting, can I tell you what it was about? This is what's interesting. So this was a very visceral conversation. You're standing at a gas station and you're holding a match. I actually write about it in my books. His problem was not my competence. His problem with me was I was not holding confidences. He was sharing information with me about the future of the company. And I was talking about it. I was gossiping like, oh, you know, who's getting fired next or you know what's happening mm -hmm. now. And I just was, I was, um, I was a child masquerading as a managing director. And he said to me, I, I don't trust you. I, 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 you know, I'm hearing this, that they got this from you. And I, I can't share my thoughts with you because I don't, trust you i trust you to meet your quarter i trust you to run the business but i don't trust you as a culture leader of this company by the way he ended up being the best man of my wedding seven years later we're still very good friends to this day he's the ceo of a big company here in utah but it was a pivotal moment you know what can i tell you here was the lesson the lesson was he had the confidence and the courage to discussed my blind spots with me. He cared about me enough. He loved me enough to sit me down and have an intervention with me. He was saving me from myself. And there's, I tell you, that's a huge contribution leaders make is to love your people enough to sit them down and have a high courage conversation with some diplomacy to save people from themselves. Yeah, I love it. I want to um, talk about, I want to go a little bit further on that line if we can. So, you know, we're here sort of, I hate saying post COVID because it doesn't feel post COVID really. Um, but we're not kind of post COVID you know, in Chile. Well, it is, well, it's not really, I and mean, we're still stuck here in the UK. There's all sorts of things I going on. But anyway, 
There's been a lot of change, right? A lot of a lot of things have happened in the last uh, eighteen months to two years. When you look at the landscape of leadership now, right, and you know from your platform with your podcast and all that, you you got a great perspective here. What are what are some of the key principles, the key characteristics, let's say, that you think leaders must adopt, even if they're not you know there naturally, but they yeah. have to adopt it to be successful coming out of you know and coming into what we've had. Yes, post pandemic, so to speak. Yeah, just just uh, yes, there's I a lot it. of. I got it. Yeah, right. your question is very reasonable. I would have asked it the same way. Um, one is in no in no particular order. One is there is a tsunami of transition happening in companies around the world. Like in America, we're back, right? I can go do anything. We're totally open, no masks. Most people that are reasonable are vaccinated and we're back. No longer are your employees hostages in the US. Everybody's been a hostage for the last 18 months. Now people have choices now. And so if you are not in re-recruitment mode right now, you're going to be in recruitment mode, meaning your people mm. are gonna flee and they're gonna yeah, spend yeah. all your time hiring new people because i'm telling you your competitors are coming after your top talent money is free money is basically free in america with 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 interest rates right and every private equity company is sitting on massive amounts of money every company is hoarded cash and they are now going after all the top talent in their competition so as a leader you need to be seriously into re-recruitment mode so you don't have a brain drain that's the first thing Second, right. I would say is you've got to have the emotional agility, the intellectual nimbleness to look around corners, to be a futurist, really figure out kind of, you know, you know, what business is going to put us out of business and how quickly can I build it? How fast can I build this, right? How, how can I be ahead of the game? You know, in this book that Karen Dillon wrote called How You Measure Your Life, they shared an empirical Harvard Business School study that said 93% of organizations that achieve financial success, do so with an emergent strategy, not the deliberate strategy they set out with. Only 7% of the time do companies actually achieve success financially with the original idea of the founder or the leader or the CEO. 93% of the time, they have to pivot and change their minds. That means you've got to be agile. You've got to be unnaturally flexible. You have to be open to influence. You have to not have your ego attached to all your ideas. You have to be able to say, well, that was a stupid idea. Who thought of that? Oh, that was me, right? Who's got a bet? I mean, you've got to be able to be influenced by other people. In fact, people that you may not naturally think, it might be a frontline salesperson. It might be the maintenance lady, right? And it might be someone that doesn't naturally come into your purview. You've got to show a level of humility that is perhaps unnatural for you. Let me think. Let me think of one more. Oh, this is what I said before. This is really good. No, I'm I'm enjoying this because all of this resonates with what I'm seeing as well. But I, I, I want to get a summary at the end. But keep going because I think there is some different characteristics here that are going to be very important for people who are, yeah. you know, wanting to really win. Right? You know, coming out of this. So you know, this going. is this will sound like a cliche, but it's so true. Every company is now a technology company, mm -hmm. and every company is in the same business. You're in the people business, whether it is leading your people or working with people as clients, as vendors, as suppliers, as customers, as future acquirers, whatever it is, you are in the people business. You are, you are a technology company and you are in the people business. And that stays true whether you are a church, whether you are in hospitality, 
whether you are in education, whether you are in, I don't, you know, whether you're an artificial intelligence company. I mean, I, I interviewed the world's leading authority on AI, happens to be an Australian a guy named Ash Fontana, wrote a new book called um, The AI First Company. And of all the things I learned from him, the smartest thing I learned was CEOs, stop putting your entire IT division down the hall with the CIO. Move them all into operations, into supply chain, into marketing, into human resources, into legal, to have them actually understand what really goes on in your company. You will stop all the boondoggles. You'll stop all of the, you know, the challenges where you have non-technical leaders leading highly technical people and they can't get along and there's different languages, spread them out across your company because we're in the people business, including over in IT as well. That was a profound insight from an AI expert. Yeah, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put an underline and a bold uh, under the whole idea that every everyone is in the people business. You know, I, I fully agree now. And you know, what's also interesting for me, another one I'll just add in to, to build on yours is, you know, there are so many people out there who are, let's, let's say self-employed, freelance or whatever else, some, some because they have been put in that position. But there are the, the, the amount of talent that's out there right now is incredible, more, more than I've seen. Oh, sure. and, and this idea that you know, people are being a little bit more prudent around how they kind of manage themselves and their, and their careers. So you've got to change there. You've got to transition. So not everyone's necessarily going to be employed by you, right? But it's about how you're going to engage people in a much broader way. I'm so glad you said that. I think the biggest change that we're going to see that post-pandemic is everybody's values have changed, right? Everybody's reassessing what's important in their life. You know, most people know someone that lost their life or was affected by COVID. I have two people. I have two friends that passed away. Oh, wow. A member of our board of directors passed away. The former CFO of Walmart was on our board. Robust guy in his 60s. Prime of his life passed away from COVID. A member of our board of directors. Everybody's reassessing their values. People are not willing to work for jerks anymore. People are not willing to work in a low trust environment. They want to do meaningful work on a winning team and a culture of trust. And so the younger generation in America, they don't own cars. I owned three cars when I was 18 years old. Right now they're like car, who wants a car, right? They're living at home. Their, their values are so different. So it's the company, it's the leader that understands how are you going to build a culture where people can do meaningful work and an environment of trust on a winning team. If you can answer those questions post pandemic, man, you're gonna be ahead of your competition. Oh, mic drop moment there, Scott. <laughs> All right, I've got a couple more questions for you. How important, because I can see on the back that you've got there, um, master mentors, how important has mentors been to you in your uh, career and your success? This is a book that I'm publishing in September from HarperCollins called Master Mentors. I picked 30 of my first favorite guests on the podcast that I host and wrote a chapter about each one of them. My entire career is the result of people who believed in me more than I believed in myself. They saw something in me that I was trying to destroy or I didn't see in myself. And so I am the product of an endless group of mentors, some of which I had named a mentor, some of which I didn't know until later. Oh, they really were a mentor to me. I just didn't give them credit or I didn't really understand that. Um, I've always done something smart, which is I've always friended up. Now, when people hear this, they get confused. So give me a quick clarification. 
I have always aligned myself with people who were smarter, older, wealthier, more educated, wiser, better traveled, had more bankruptcies than I did because that's where I learned. My friends were always 50 when I was 25. When I met my wife, we went to Italy with two of my best friends that were in their 60s. I was in my 40s and she was in her late 20s. She's like, why are all your friends like 60 years old? It's because I always realized I'm not going to learn from my fraternity brothers. I'm going to learn from the CEOs of companies and from mayors and from clergy that are older than me. So I always had a really good bent towards learning from people that could teach me. That does not mean that I didn't friend down. I don't use that term. I have lots of people that, that can't do anything for me in my life, that I'm mentoring them or I'm helping them or probably learning from them. But mentors have been the single largest contributing cause of my success. Someone calling me aside and saying, Scott, you can't say that. Scott, stop doing that. Scott, that is going to destroy your brand. Stop doing that. High courage conversations took me behind a door, closed it, looked me in the eye and said, if you ever do that again, I will not be your sponsor. And here is why. And they were loving conversations. People loved me, right? They had my best interest at heart. And so I think they also recognized that I had potential, but I also, to quote you, I had some self-awareness, meaning I was willing to not refute it or dispute it or deny it. I would say, oh my gosh, that is the stupidest thing ever. Why did I do that? Let's talk about why I did that. Okay, now I got it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It's, I'll tell you, in my career, I've had the privilege of interviewing and hiring thousands of people. I've also had the responsibility, Nick, of terminating dozens of people. Every single person I've ever terminated in my entire life was because of a lack of self-awareness. They mm -hmm. had the technical capability to do the job, but they were incapable of understanding what it was like to work with them, be around them, communicate with them. They all had a void of self-awareness. It probably is the number one career competency that everybody should build. Build your self-awareness. And the one thing I'm going to take away as well from what you said, I, I, love, I love the term, you know, courageous or courage conversations. I love that. Yeah, and you got to balance it, right? You got to have high courage conversations but you have to balance it with consideration and diplomacy because I'm a very forceful person. Being on the other end of a high courage conversation with me can be very intimidating. I, I, I can violate your self-esteem. I can intimidate you. So I have to be a balance of diplomacy, which does not come natural to me, but courage. The opposite is true, right? People that are more shy and retiring and have an abundance of diplomacy, they may need to summon some courage and talk a bit straight. It's that delicate balance of both, but it's different in every conversation. Yeah. And you also, I think, you know, from my experience of it, you earn the right to it to some extent. So if you are an ask to someone all the time and then you pull them into a room and then you have a, it's called a direct conversation, <laughs> it's not going to be effective. But as you said, if it's coming from the right place, right, this is, you know, this is going to be hard to hear potentially for you, right? Because you're now not you aware should of say it. those words, right? You should declare your intent. You should say, hey, Nick, thanks for coming in. I need to have a high courage conversation with you about one of your blind spots. Nick, my intent is not to embarrass you or minimize you. My intent is to help you build a great career here, which is why I'm going to talk to you about your antiperspirant. Nick, you're breaking through your deodorant, and I would help hate for anybody to notice that. Like me in the hot London summers, we tend to break through our deodorant, so you might want to switch it up. I want you to have a great reputation of brand here, and that's it. And 
I hope you're not embarrassed. What's said in here stays in here. And, you know, great success to you. That was a bit comical. That's okay. It comes across. I'm wearing, you know, my my T-shirt's too tight. So that's the reason why. I didn't didn't say that. (laughs) What's what's next for you, Scott? You said beforehand that, you know, you're... You're still advising the Franklin Covey yeah. organization, but what's next for you? What's the, what's you know, the I'm, I'm a father first. My wife and I, Stephanie, are raising three boys that are six, nine, and 11. Oh, similar to us. They all have my personality. So it is, you know what, here. Oh, wow. It's crazy. High uh, energy. So, I'll say yeah, high energy. High energy. Yeah. Father first. Uh, I am writing books. I have three books that are launching this year. I am speaking around the world a lot, back on planes, traveling um, soon international. I, awesome. I host uh, I host the world's largest podcast for leadership called On Leadership with Scott Miller. I'm hosting a new book club on bookclub.com. I've got a couple of TV pilots that are in development. Um, I have a career coaching uh, course, and I got some cool things in the works. So um, just kind of you know I'm I'm I, I'm I'm in the later part of my life, I have learned the difference between being reckless and being fearless. Seth Godin, who's a good friend of mine and mentor, taught me that. Most of my life, I was masquerading as being fearless when I was really being reckless. Reckless Mm. with my brand, reckless with my money, reckless with my reputation, reckless with your feelings. And now I am much more deliberate on stop being reckless, nothing illegal or immoral, right? But being more fearless and running with my passions and strengths. And that's what I plan to do the next, hopefully, 30 years. Wow. Well, this has been awesome. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you, Dick. Um, Thanks for that spotlight. It's all right. No, I wanted to kind of, I like to, when, when people come on the show, this is, this is, this is, I'll just say this, right? Uh, people think it's going to be some boring show about business, right? But it's not, right? We like to get into it a little bit and just understand the, the person behind the person, but the person behind the brands, you know, everyone can look you up, Scott. They can look at the books. They can look at the cool glasses you've got on. But, you know, just a little bit of, you know, what's underneath the surface makes a big difference. It's not the glasses. I got about 70 pair of different glasses. You're right. There's the, what's called the personality ethic. And that's the glasses <laughs> you're wearing and your cufflinks. I got plenty of cufflinks behind me. But then as Dr. Covey said, there is your character ethic, right? And what you're really about. And I try to keep those both in balance. If you will. I appreciate you having me on today. Nice meeting you. I hope we remain friends. No, absolutely. And where can people find you if they want to, other than I've just said they can find you anywhere if they look yeah, at your name. My, my website is scottjeffreymiller.com. You can Google me. I'm, my handsome mug is bound to come up. You can yep. follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, you name it. I'm out there. My books are all on Amazon. Love to have you pick one up. Done. Well, listen, Scott Jeffrey Miller, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Scale Up Your Business today. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And there you have it, another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.